Well, good morning or afternoon. Um, almost there, yeah. Uh, my name is Pastor John. I'm going to be sharing with you guys today. Jim is out of the country, and we're going to actually hear from him in a little bit on a video. Um, so that'll be really neat. But uh, ladies, if you were going to register for training camp, remember now was the time I think Natalie shared to, to do that. So if you want to do that while I'm talking, that's, that's what she suggested. Uh, it's a great time uh, to, to do it. We're in the middle of a series uh, called Filtered, and we're talking about social media how to effectively engage people, how to be godly and wise when we're on it, uh, how to use it for good, and uh, some great messages so far. And as a dad of, high, uh, of a high schooler and some middle schoolers, and as a family pastor at our church, I think about those things quite a bit um, for your children, for my children, even for myself. And so definitely something that, uh, that I'm interested in, and I think we are as a church if we're going to be relevant. Uh, Matt McKee, in his parent chat book about technology that I read earlier this summer on vacation, he talks about our fascination with technology and how it's always been a part of our lives. And so for those of you who, who maybe are a little older or maybe just haven't gotten into social media, um, you can still appreciate um, some of the things that we're definitely talking about and how you uh, maybe had, had, had wanted some things in the past, were drawn to certain pieces of technology. Uh, He writes in his book, so much of today's technology is like wish fulfillment of the gadgets we love from science fiction movies and television shows we grew up watching. Our science fiction heroes took us into their homes, businesses, and secret hideouts that were full of wonderful imaginative technology that we wished and hoped would be in our homes soon. And now many of those dreams have indeed become a part of our lives in our homes. Star Trek, uh, communicators, became flip phones, he says. <laughs> Star Trek tricorders are a, sure lot, uh, are a lot like our current smartphones. We use them to explore our world as they feed us all kinds of information uh, based upon our location. And they even take readouts from the health management devices that monitor our sleep patterns, our activity levels, and our pulse rates. You know, ever since Dick Tracy talked to somebody on his phone, I'm sorry, on his watch, we've all wanted to do it and now we can. Uh, Siri from Apple or Cortana from Microsoft or Alexa even from Amazon, they might not be quite as slick as the computer from Star Trek or Jarvis from Iron Man, and they might not be as lovable as C-3PO or R2-D2 from Star Wars, but these smart robotically voice assistants that understand you, answer you, and find you information that you need are here to stay, and they're getting smarter and better every year. Uh, you remember the Jetsons, you remember the flat screen televisions that they had. Today, they are flat screen televisions. And they get thinner every year. I wish we did that as humans. <laughs> you remember the Jetsons would push a button and uh, they would order food or product. And whenever they would order, it would show up at their house. Amazon and a lot of other online companies are making it easier and easier to shop for every item that you can imagine, including food that can get delivered to your door that very day. You see, the worlds of our dreams are made possible by technology. And what I mean by that is if we can dream about something, then we seek to try to find a way to invent it or to create it. That is because technology is an extension of our nature. It's a result of our efforts, the things that we create and invent, the the technology that comes out is simply an effort that we have come up with to solve the problems that we encounter in life. We try to find a better way to solve something, to make something more efficient, to make something more convenient. 
But that's what technology is. It's trying to solve a problem. It's answering the struggles that we have every day. Think for a moment about the technology that you used even to wake up this morning, to get yourself some kind of breakfast, to get yourself even to church. All the pieces of technology that are in your life that weren't there 100 years ago or 150 years ago that we now use because they're more convenient, more efficient, and more effective. Somebody found a way to solve a problem and technology changes things. When you leave your house each day, now we don't just pat our pockets to make sure we have our keys and our wallet. Now we need sort of a third pocket to make sure we have our phone. In fact, our phones are replacing in a lot of ways our wallet as we pay for more and more things on our phone. And very soon we're probably going to be replacing our keys as we begin to unlock things with our phone, right? But these three things are so critical that we take with us when we go out into the world. Uh, Taking our wallet is important because it it gives us access to resources, to finances, so that we can purchase the things that we need, right? And uh, our keys give us access to physical places like our house or our place of work or our car so that we can get where we need to go. Our phone gives us access to information now that we want to have at our fingertips. But more importantly, our phone gives us access to relationships that we can have with us anywhere we go and anywhere that we are. And that's why those three things are so critical to our lives. See, social media and communication with others through our phones, that didn't come about just because of some whim that some developer in some other part of the world or some part of this country came up with on his or her own. No, we have always as humans looked for better ways to try to communicate with each other and to have that communication whenever we needed it. It's why there used to be a payphone on almost every corner in our towns that we grew up in. It's why there used to be a courtesy phone at every place of business, airport, hospital, hotel, so that somebody could page us and we'd get back to them. It's why we used to send important messages with even a physical messenger person so that important communication would always be accessible. The desire for constant contact with others isn't a new thing. It's just that now we have new technology that allows us to even be more accessible and more convenient more of the time. But what I want us to think about this morning is what if the problems that we're trying to solve with technology when it comes to relationships isn't something that can be solved? What if we have these deep, our most deep-seated desires and challenges and struggles can't be solved with just better technology? And why is it that we have a longing for belonging that can't seem to be quenched no matter how many social connections we have? whether those are online or in person. Turn with me into your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We're going to go back to the beginning today. If you need a Bible, our ushers in either room would love to put a Bible in your hand. So turn there and, and, look, and uh, look at it. But raise your hand up if you need a Bible. That's our gift to you. You can take that home with you if you don't have a Bible. We'd love for you to, to read it and uh, to bring it back with you. But Genesis chapter 1, we're going to read a couple verses here in a bit. The reason that mankind has always searched to discover better and more advanced ways to communicate and be in relationship and connection to others is because that desire was hardwired into us as human beings back here in the very beginning. We were wired with a longing for belonging. We were wired to seek relationships. In the first few weeks of this series, which really you need to go back and watch or listen to if you haven't, they're very, very good. 
Jim talked about some very practical ways that we can interact with people on social media. But today we're going to sort of pull back the curtain. We're going to lift up the hood and we're going to try to help us understand why we are so drawn to social media and other forms of communication. We're going to try to discover how we can navigate this world of technology that we live in and stay on God's path. So let's read together. Would you stand up? Genesis 1, we're going to read five verses. Verses 26 to 31. Genesis 1, 26 to 31. Here we go. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Go ahead and grab a seat. Thanks for reading along there with me. Now it might be worth for you to go back and read all of Genesis 1 this afternoon or this evening to get a fuller picture of the whole story of creation. But today we're going to focus on day six here, the verses that we just read, where God creates humanity. And uh, we're going to focus on that. So God has spoken light and land and plants and animals and everything to existence through these first five days. But this day is sort of the climax where God is bringing everything to this point. Everything that has been made up to this point was in preparation for what he was going to do on day six. We know that for several reasons, and not only because it was the last day, the sixth day of creation, but also there's some clues that we're going to look at here in the text that give us an idea that what is happening here is very, very significant. And so let's take a look at a couple of those clues. First, at the end of each day where God creates in Genesis chapter one, he says, it is good, right? To light to the stars, to the plants. He says, it is good. But we just read here at the end of day six, at verse 31, God says something different. After we had saw everything he had made, it says it was very good. And so God places a greater emphasis on the creations of, on the creation of human beings here. It was something that stood out. It was very good. He was very pleased with what he had done there on day six. That's significant, that clue. A second clue that this is the climax happens in verse 28. It says that God blessed them and said to them. Now, before we talk about what he said to them, which we'll do later, it's significant just that God says anything to them. Because up to this point in creation, God hasn't talked to creation. He hasn't talked to the plants. He hasn't talked to the animals. He now talks to the humans. God said to them, God gives gives them instruction. There's communication that's happening between the creator and the creation. 
That is significant. Paul Tripp writes in a book, God knew that even though Adam and Eve were a perfect couple living in a perfect relationship with him, they could not figure out life on their own. They were created to be dependent. They did not need his help because they were sinners, he writes. And that's significant. So sin has not come into the picture yet here. They didn't need his help to give them instruction because they were sinners. That's not the case. He writes, they needed his help because they were human. God created us from the very beginning, even before sin comes and sort of wrecks everything, God created us to be dependent on him. For them to figure out life, God had to give them some instruction. Does that make sense? There was communication that had to go. You and I are made that way to have communication with God. And that's significant from the rest, uh, unique from the rest of creation. A third clue is that while the animals are created and reproduced according to their own kind, which we can see all throughout Genesis 1. If you flip back, I'll show you a couple times. Genesis 1.11, then God said, uh, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees in the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. So they, you know, plants are going to have plants that are like it, and Trees are going to have plants that are like it, right? And then you can look at verse 21. So God created the great creatures of the sea. So now we're into animals and every living thing which moves about the water uh, according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. So the rest of creation is made and designed according to their kind. Birds are like birds and and, uh, plants are like plants and trees are like trees. But when it comes to humanity, we're not necessarily made just according to our kind, but we are created, verse 26 says, in the image of God. We're made according to his kind. That is amazing. We're going to understand a little bit about what it means to be made in the image of God, but That is just a simple, amazing fact that we are made according to God's likeness. A fourth clue that stands out here, the significance of day six is the manner in which God creates man. When you think back to the rest of Genesis, if you've read it before, how does God create things? Just just take a look in the way that my Bible shows that each the front of the paragraph uh, says, and God said, let there be light. And then verse 6 says, And God said, let there be a vault between the waters. And then 9 says, And God said, let the water into the sky. And on and on. And God said, let there be lights. And God said, let the water have living creatures. And God said, let the land produce living creatures. But when God comes to humanity, while he has spoken everything else into creation, while he simply says, let there be light, And bam, there's light. And what a beautiful, powerful picture of God's amazing power. It's not as personal as what he does when he creates humanity. Chapter 2 of Genesis kind of gives us a little more detail to how he creates. And so take a look at chapter 2, Genesis. And we're going to look at verse, just one verse, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God, what's the word? Formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And so God doesn't speak people into existence. What does he do? He forms them. He molds them. He shapes them in a very loving and with much contact, a very personal way. There's a touch involved. There's an element of intimacy there as God creates Adam and Eve. 
And a great scripture, one of my favorite psalms, in fact, my favorite psalm is Psalm 139. And Psalm 139, 15 and 16 show us that God continues to create that way. Don't turn there, I'll read really fast. My frame, it says, was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body and all of the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And so God continues to create you. You were made that way. You were formed by God as he thought about and planned your life and your personality and your characteristics and the, thing that, the things that make you, you, uniquely designed. You were formed and shaped by God and placed into your mother's womb. That's amazing. And so there is significance to you. There is significance to you because of the God who made you. And so at the end now of creation, at the end of the sixth day, much like baseball coaches will get together in the dugout and say, should we now bring in our closer, our Stark? Should we now, the the Trinity gets together at the end of chapter one of Genesis in verse 26. They come together and they're deciding now is the time to bring humans onto the scene. And then verse 26 says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. And what a really cool picture of the Trinity there. Because, let, uh, um, because it says, then God said, verse 26, God is singular. There's only one God. The Bible teaches in the Old Testament, the New Testament, that in every age of history there ever was, there's only one God. There's not different forms or variations. There's not different ways that God reveals himself at different times. There's only one God. And so that's significant. However, the Bible also teaches that there are three persons to the Trinity. And, uh, and so this is a great picture of that because then God said, singular God, let us, that's plural, make mankind in our image, that's plural, and in our likeness, that's plural. Now we don't have time to sort of dissect what the Trinity, how that all comes together. It's very hard to understand in our finite minds. However, it is perfectly reasonable in the infinite mind of God. And that is why I'm okay with it. The Bible teaches both things that there is only one God, but yet he's revealed in three persons. However, for our point today, it's neat to see that there is community even within the Godhead itself. There is community that happens and that is why we have this longing for belonging inside of us because we are made in that likeness, in that image where we desire community as well. And that is significant. We are made for this community just because our creator is and he created us in his image. And that's why technology that we've tried to design and and create and come up with throughout all of history has always been to help us to create environments for community. We are made that way. However, ultimately technology is lacking. And no matter what we invent or create next, it will always be lacking Because our longing for belonging is deeper than just community, even with other people. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Let's pause and kind of talk about that for a second. Let me give you three thoughts of what it means to be made in the image of God. Why is it that mankind is so significant? What is it that sets them apart from everything else that God made? Number one, being made in God's image means that we are a reflection of God's character to the world. We are a reflection of God's character to the world. Here's what I mean by that. 
we can see in small glimpses a picture of God through human beings. There are some character traits that we share. Now, there's some character traits that we don't share. For instance, God is all-knowing, and no matter what our children may act like, or no matter what maybe some other friends that you know think, they're not all-knowing. Neither are you or I. God is like that alone. That's what makes him God. But there are some character traits that we do share with God. For instance, when you feel compassion, you are demonstrating God to the world. When you unconditionally love, you are a picture of God to the world. Even when you feel pain and hurt, you are demonstrating in a simple way the character of God to the world. In some small ways, we are a picture of who God is. We're a reflection of God's character in the world. Second, uh, being made in God's image means that we are a representative of God's rule over the world. God's first words to the humans, to Adam, is to direct them to rule over the rest of creation, to be God's representative, to maintain order, to prevent chaos. There must be a group that is overseeing, and he puts that on us because we're made in his image, and we uh, are his representative to rule over the world. Those are the first communication that God gives to Adam and Eve there. Third, uh, besides being a reflection of God's character and a representative of God's rule, we are a relational being, both with God himself and other image bearers. Being made in the image of God means that we are relational creatures, that we are seeking relationship both with the one in whose image we are made as well as with other others who bear his image as well. And this is the key part that we're kind of focusing on today when we think about being made in the image of God, uh, our longing for belonging. Why do you want so badly to be liked by coworkers? Or why do you want so badly to have so many likes on the posts that you put up on social media? It's because you were made that way. Why is it that your, your child wants to have friends in every setting they go into before they go into that setting? It's because they were made that way. We were wired for community because our creator is uh, that way and created us in his image. However, as humans, we place too much emphasis on what other people think. And there's a difference between finding community with other people and looking for our identity and our value and our worth from other people. And we were not created to do that. We were not created to find our value in what other people think of us. We were not created to find our worth in what other people think of us. We were created to find community with them. And we're going to unpack that and continue to talk about that more in this series But we were made to find our value and our identity in the one who gave us our value and our worth. Our Our value and our worth are derived because we are simply made in the image of God. You are who God says you are. You are not who anyone else says. Whether that be your spouse or your parents or your friends or your coworkers or your teachers. You are who God says you are. That is why you are so valuable and so 
uh, and such a worthy cost. When we search for our value and for our sense of meaning in anything else other than God, uh, for instance, like social media, we will always be left unsatisfied. Like a sip of water on an extremely hot August day, which we do not have this weekend. But like a sip of water on an extremely hot August day, when we look for our value anywhere else than God, we will only be getting a sip instead of the full cup that we desperately need when we are hot. We will always be left thirsty. So we must go to God to find that value. Go again to chapter 2 of Genesis and that verse that we looked at earlier, verse 7, where God creates man. God breathes... uh, 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 Hang on a second. God here shapes humans, or Adam, with his hands. Let's take a look. Let me just read it for you. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That is an incredible picture right there. That God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. To have somebody be able to breathe into your nostrils... They are incredibly close to you, right? That would make me feel very uncomfortable if you tried to do that today. But the fact that that's the way the author paints the picture is a description of the kind of relationship that we are designed to have with God. God had wired Adam to have that kind of close, personal relationship, connection with him. See, God created you to have a face-to-face, intimate relationship with him. That's how God made you. That's how you and I are wired. To have not just a casual relationship, to not just sort of talk to him every once in a while, That's why you still say, I'm a believer. I go to church, but I I just don't, I feel empty. I feel like I'm missing something because God's not looking for casual friendship with you. God is looking for face-to-face, intimate connection with you. And when you find that, or as you seek that, because we'll never really just get there and arrive, but as you continue to pursue that and seek that is when you will find the meaning that you are searching for and the purpose that you are longing for in your life, that is when that longing for belonging will be filled because God wired you that way. Let me say it this way. Your creator made you to crave what only he can fill. One of the strongest draws that we have to social media is to find that identity in what other people will say about us or what they will think of us. And while we were made for those kinds of relationships with other people and to communicate with others, and we're going to look again more at that later in this series, we were not made to find our identity. Your identity, who you are as a person, and your value does not come from how many likes you get. It does not come from how many likes you get on videos, pictures, or posts. Comparing yourself to other friends will always leave you lacking. 
whether you watch their lives through social media and you say, I'll never be like them. My kids certainly aren't like their kids. My relationships aren't like their relationships. I don't get to go on the trips they get to go on. That will always leave you lacking as you wrongly think less of yourself than you should. However, as you compare yourself, you can also wrongly think more of yourself than you should as you compare. That's why comparison will always leave you lacking. Your identity does not come from your comparison to other people. At the deepest level of your core, you are made to have an intimate face-to-face relationship with God. He is the one who gives you value because you are his precious creation. The enemy has always tried to deflect our attention from him to other things. That's why you are tempted to look for your identity, your value in what you do for a living or in your children or in something else, some skill that you bring to the table or set of relationships or a relationship that you think makes you who you are. Because that's the enemy. Look at Genesis chapter three. The first time that he comes on the scene, he's there with Adam or with Eve and, and with Adam as well. And, uh, Verse one of three says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And then she answers him. He says in verse four to her, You won't certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What is he doing? He's challenging the trust between God and the people. He's trying to break up that intimate connection that they have with him, with God. He's trying to cast doubt onto their relationship that God might somehow be holding out. And isn't that what he does to us as he tries to take our deepest affections and turn them towards other things instead of God himself? He is challenging the trust between us and God. He twists the words and the communication that God gives to us to make it sound as if he's holding out on us, that we really will be happy if we pursue these other things instead or even above God, that somehow we will find better meaning, that somehow we will be happier if we do things away from God. And that is the same temptation that he gives to Adam and Eve in the garden, and we must not be fooled by it. He twists things so that our heart's affection will long for everything else except for our creator. Because he knows that we will waste our lives chasing significance everywhere else except where we will actually find it. So how do we practically pursue this intimate relationship with God? Well, if you've been a Christian for five minutes or five years, or even 55 years, the number one thing that you can do to grow your relationship with God is to have regular personal time reading the Bible and listening to the Holy Spirit's prompts. That's the number one thing. The Bible teaches it all throughout, but even research, Christian research that's been done in the last 10, 15, 20 years shows that the number one thing you can do, now there are a lot of great things, coming and being a part of a local church, being in accountability. Those things are also great steps, but they are kind of outside of this first step, which is your personal connection to God. As long as the only time that you open up the Bible is on a Sunday, you will only be treading water at best in your relationship with God. 
but it is when you are able to, on a regular basis, discipline yourself to be able to spend time with God. How do you get to know your wife better if you're married or your husband? You don't see each other once a week. That's not a great relationship, right? There's going to be struggles if that's the only time you communicate. Your best friend, you don't just kind of catch up or communicate with them once in a while. You spend time with them. You get to know them. It's the same way with our relationship with God. It's how he wired us. We're made in his image and in his likeness. A simple way to think about this, if you are yet to, or you're still kind of struggling to have that personal time or getting started, a simple way to get started is something we call 555, where you have five minutes reading the Bible each day, and then five minutes to listen to God, and then five minutes to pray. And what I mean by that is you, you're reading God's word. You're spending time listening and taking it in. That five minutes in the middle where you listen, some people like to journal. Maybe they write things that God might be sort of laying on their hearts. I like to, I like to use Bible studies where I fill in blanks and I kind of, it helps me to think through stuff. Some people just like to be really quiet and just listen to what God might sort of be saying to them. But as you're reading the scripture and as you're pausing to be quiet, to listen, You'll be surprised that he might lead you. He might bring people to mind, things that you need to work on, change, grow, wherever. He does that. He speaks to you. He is your teacher. And then that five minutes to pray and talk back to him about whatever it is that he put on your heart. Maybe you're growing to the point where you're saying, I want, I want a little more. So maybe 10, 10, 10. But those are all really important. Taking in God's word, listening, letting the Holy Spirit reflect, and then praying back to him is going to make a difference. You'll see an amazing growth in your life. I can tell you from my own life, that was the number one thing that's helped me to grow in the course of my Christian walk these last 20 years is when I finally kind of became disciplined in my time with him. And so I'll pick a time and place where you're going to do it. That's a practical tip. You know, so you have the morning or the evening, but you pick a time that you know you're going to be in there and focus. If you kind of just say you'll do it when you get to it, you probably won't get to it. You'll get busy with life or even the enemy will come in and distract you with these other things that will become more important to you. So pick a time when you're going to do it. Uh, number two, make a plan for what you'll do. And so there's some great plans. This is where technology is amazing. version has lots of things that you can pull from, lots of plans. There's lots of other great devotions out there as long as you are in the word. And then uh, number three, pick a partner to help you stick with it who's going to be doing this as well, who wants to grow too. It's important you pick a partner who wants to grow as well, not someone who you're going to be dragging along. But pick a partner who's also trying to grow, that you're going to help each other move forward and go together forward in your relationship with God. God created you to have a face-to-face intimate relationship with him. That's what you seek every day when you're seeking, when you're seeking other pursuits. You're really looking for God. He put that that longing for belonging inside of you, but we are trying to fill it with other things. And God is trying to point your heart back towards him. The good news is, is that he loves you fiercely and he continues to come after you. He created you personally with his hands as he formed you together. This week, as I was thinking about this talk, I've also been reading these, this book to my three-year-old daughter, Emery. And I thought, this is a powerful story that I'm actually going to read to you guys today because it under, helps us understand this relationship that God desires to have with us. Now, before you check out and say, he's going to read a kid's book. Listen, put down your Bibles, put away your notebooks. And I want you just to sit there because you are a child. You are a child of God. Uh, John tells us that if you believe in his name, that you have the right to be called a son or daughter of God. 
And so I want you to understand this point. This is what God thinks about you. Put yourself in this story and understand this truth about how God wired you. This is called Because I Love You by Max Lucado. Long ago in a land far away, and unlike any you have ever seen, there lived a wise man named Shaddai. Shaddai was a large man with a tender heart. He had bright blue eyes and a long, thick beard. And when he laughed, which is something he did often, his cheeks would lift up until his eyes became half moons of joy. When he sang, which is something else he did often, everything stopped to listen. Tall aspens would bend, squirrels, butterflies, and birds would pause. Even the children would turn when they heard his voice. And well, they should. It was for them that he sang. And for the children, Shaddai had built a wonderful village. It was more than any child could dream. The children plunged into the sky blue pond. They squealed as they soared high on the swings hung from the apple tree branches. They scampered through the meadows and giggled in the orchards. The sun never seemed to set too early and the cool night sky always brought about a quiet peace. But most of all, Shaddai was always near. When Shaddai wasn't in the meadow with the children or in the orchards with the children, he was in the workshop with the children. They loved to be with him while he worked. They loved to smell the sawdust, hear him sing, watch him carve out a chair, a chair out of a log or make a table out of a tree. They would gather around him and take turns pressing their tiny hands flat against his great big hands. Every night he would gather the children on the grassy meadow and tell them stories. Fascinated, the children would listen as long as Shaddai or their weary eyes allowed them to. The children loved Shaddai and he loved them. He knew each one of them by name and he knew everything about them. He knew that Lucy loved birds, that Roland was scared of the dark. He knew that Daphne was friendly, that Peter was shy and he knew that Palladin was curious. When one of them called his name, he dropped whatever he was doing and turned. His giant heart had a hundred strings, each held by a different child. And Shaddai loved each one the same. And that's why he had built the wall. The wall was a high stone fence surrounding the village. Shaddai had built it rock upon rock. The wall was so tall it stood high above Shaddai. Even if he stretched his arms as high as he could, he still couldn't touch the top of the wall. He spent days building it. And as he built, he did not sing. A deadly forest stood outside the village. As Shaddai built the fence, he often would pause and look into the shadows beyond. Cruel thorns and savage beasts and hidden pits filled the dark forest. It was no place for the children that Shaddai loved. Beyond the wall is danger, he would tell the children in solemn tones. You were made for my village, not for that terrible land beyond. Stay with me, it's safe here. But his heart knew it would only be a matter of time. The day he placed the final stone on the wall, he returned to his shop and he took a long aspen branch and he sat down at his bench and he carved a staff. Should I stood the staff in a corner? I'll be ready, he told himself. Sometime later, a boy ran into Shaddai's workshop. The sandy-haired child with searching eyes and restless energy brought the maker both joy and concern. Should I? In one motion, the, the maker dropped his hammer and turned. What is it, Palladin? The book, the boy spoke in spurts as he gasped for air. The wall, I found a hole. It's a big opening, sir. The boy's hand stretched to show the size. Someone could crawl through it. 
Should I pull over a stool and he sat down? I knew it would be you, Palladin, my child. Tell me, how did you find it? I was walking along the wall. I was searching for holes, said Shaddai. Palladin paused, surprised that Shaddai knew. Yes, I was looking for holes so you could see out into the forest. I was curious, Shaddai. I wanted to know why you won't let us go out there. Why is it so bad? Shaddai motioned for the boy to come to him. When Palladin came near, the, the maker cupped the small face in his hands. He lifted it so the boy's face, so the boy would look directly into his eyes. The urgency of the look caused Palladin's stomach to feel empty. Palladin, listen to me. The lands out there are not for you. They are not for me. A journey into the forest will hurt you. You were not made for those lands. Let your feet carry you to the many places you can go, not to the one place that you can't. If you leave here, you will not find the way back. Palladin spoke softly. You will fix the hole then? No, Palladin, I created the hole because I love you so much. But you just said you don't want us to leave. I don't want you to leave. I want you to stay with me. But I did make the opening when I built the wall. But if you don't fix it, said Palladin, then other children might leave. I know, Palladin, but I want the children to stay because they want to, not because they have to. Palladin didn't understand. Uncomfortable, he turned to leave. He needed to think about what Shaddai had said. As he entered the sunlight, he looked back into the shop, and there sat, sh- sat Shaddai, leaning backward, but still watching. Palladin was confused. Part of him wanted the safety of Shaddai's shop, while another part drew him toward the fence. He looked again into the shop. Shaddai was standing now, not moving, but standing, his large hand stretched out towards the boy. Palladin turned away quickly as if he hadn't seen him. He walked as fast as he could, aimlessly at first, but then purposely toward the fence. I won't get too near, he said to himself. I'll just peek out. Questions came as quickly as his steps. Why do I want to do what Shaddai doesn't want me to do? Why am I so curious? And is it so wrong to want to see beyond the fence anyway? By now, Palladin was at the hole. Without stopping to think, he lay on his stomach and he squirmed through just far enough to stick his head out the other side. I'll just take a quick look, he told himself. What could be wrong with that? Should I said he made the hole because he loved us, but I wonder what he's keeping from me. As if his knees were now moving on their own, Palladin crawled farther and farther, and soon he was through the hole and on the outside of the wall. He rose slowly to his feet. For several moments, he didn't move at all. He wondered if something would come out of the trees to hurt him. Nothing did. He relaxed his shoulders and he sighed. It's not so bad. It's nice out here. What was Shaddai so worried about? Palladin began walking into the forest. Twigs snapped beneath his bare feet. Sweet flowers scented the air. I don't see any scary creatures, he thought. The trees were so thick he could barely see the sky. Just a few steps into the woods, he said, to see what it's like. After a dozen more steps, he stopped He liked the wilderness. There's nothing to be afraid of. For the first time in his life, he believed that Shaddai was wrong. Just wait until I tell the others. And he turned to go back through the hole. But the hole was gone. 
He stopped and he stared. He saw only a solid wall. Palladin ran to the wall. Was this the spot where he had crawled through or was it somewhere else? He, he couldn't remember now. So he ran a dozen steps one way and then he ran a dozen steps the other way, but nothing. Suddenly he heard a strange sound in the woods behind him. He turned around quickly, but he saw nothing. Palladin looked into the forest. It didn't seem friendly anymore. It was dark and threatening as if it were about to destroy him. Desperately, Palladin searched the wall. He couldn't climb over it. He couldn't break through it. There was no way home. If you leave here, you will not find the way back. Shaddai's words now rang into his mind. The boy's eyes were wide with fear. He sat on the ground and he hugged his knees to his chest and began to cry. As Palladin huddled there, lonely and afraid, he remembered something else Shaddai had often said. I love you so much. Does he love me enough to come and find me, wondered the boy. Will he hear if I call to him? Shaddai, Shaddai, I'm so sorry I didn't listen to you. Please, come, help me. Palladin's plea had been heard by the one who loved him, even before it was spoken. For as the boy had left Shaddai's workshop, the maker had watched him as long as he could. When Palladin was out of sight, Shaddai turned, not to take up his work, but to remove his apron. He hung his tools on the wall, and then he reached into the corner and took the staff, the one that he had carved after he had finished the wall. Even before Palladin had reached the wall, Shaddai had left the shop. Even before Palladin had asked for help, Shaddai was on the way to give it. Even before the hole in the wall had closed, Shaddai had opened another one. His strong hands pulled away the rocks until he could see into the forest. And with the staff at his side, should I crawl through the hole? He left the village he had made and set out in search of his child. You and I were made for something that technology can never, ever bring. You were made because there is a God who loves you and will always come after you. You were created with a Longing for belonging to the one who created you. And only as you seek him will you find that longing filled. Lord, I pray that today would be a reminder as we looked at Genesis and our very beginnings, as we listened to this story, that it would be a reminder of how you wired us to be deeply connected to you. God, it's easy to get off track. There are so many other good things in our world that we sometimes place them above you and and, and put too much expectations on those things, expectations that you never created, but we're tempted into believing lies. God, I pray that we would find, uh, find our way back to you the one who is searching for us every day, whose love is fierce like we sang about earlier. I pray that your love would wash over each person today, that we would find our identity and our value and our worth in you alone. And I pray that in your name, amen.